Welcome to Transit Unplugged. I'm your host, Paul Comfort. Today is Monday, April 27th, and Tuesday, April 28th. This is our early week edition of Comfort's Corner, where we bring you the inside story and what's happening in and around the transit industry as we respond to and recover from the COVID-19 pandemic. And today's episode is going to be a special one. This last week, I was able to host a nationwide webinar, an executive roundtable about preparing for beyond COVID-19 business as usual. And we recorded the live webinar and are bringing it to you today on this Transit Unplugged episode. Our guests included Lauren Skyver, CEO and General Manager of Sunline Transit in sunny Southern California. Pete Stark, General Manager of Whatcom Transportation Authority at the upper northwest corner of the United States in Washington State. Elliot Carey, who's owner of a consultancy firm in Silicon Valley, helping tech startups re-message their products so they can capture uh, financing. And she's going to tell us some interesting ideas of how the transit agencies across the world can um, repurpose and remessage and market their transit systems to help them bring back the ridership and attract ridership. Some really insightful outsider industry input. And Sam Sargent, Deputy Chief of Staff of Capital Metro in Austin, Texas. It's a great 90-minute freewheeling exchange of these executives where we talk about what, what's been happening in the transit agencies, talk about the importance of Earth Day, which happened this last week, and how transit now more than ever can help cities recover uh, and uh, restore their economy and their environment. Uh, and there's a talk about um, kind of long-term implications of this and how transit agencies might look different and what our services might look like a little differently than what they do now coming into this. All that on this special edition of Comfort's Corner Transit Unplugged. Hope you enjoy it and have a great week. Welcome. This is uh, the next in our series of uh, important events where we are bringing you the inside story about what's happening in and around the transit industry around North America. And today we have with us some exciting guests, Lawrence Skyver, CEO and General Manager of Sunline Transit, Peter Stark, General Manager of Whatcom Transportation Authority, Elia Carey, owner of a consulting firm in Silicon Valley, and is going to help us on messaging uh, from a perspective of uh, what comes next for us. And then Sam Sargent, my good friend, who's Deputy Chief of Staff at Cat Metro down in Texas uh, in the city of Austin. Uh, so great to have you with us, all, all of our guests, and thank you so many of you who are joining us today. As you know, the COVID-19 crisis has given the transit industry a gut punch uh, across North America and the world, as I've been talking to my colleagues around the world. Last night, I was on an hour-long conversation with colleagues in Australia. We are seeing across the board a 50 to 90% reduction in transit ridership. And that's because of the government regulations that have been put in place to enforce social distancing and for people to work from home. As a result of that, transit systems have had to adjust their routes. Many of them have moved toward rear door boarding. Some have waived the fares and most agencies have picked up their cleaning uh, dramatically. They have a lot, lot more um, cleaning efforts using, you know, hospital grade disinfectants, etc. Here in the U.S., thankfully, uh, the United States Congress passed and the president signed a $25 billion CARES Act for the transit industry, which provided $23 billion for urban agencies and $2 billion for rural agencies to allow for uh, recovery of the cost of reduced fares, the increased cost of cleaning, and all the additional costs and the loss of revenues that are coming in for many agencies like SAMS that are sales tax funded. And uh, so this money is to help recover uh, from the COVID-19 crisis. And we'll be asking all of our guests how that, how that funding is helping them or how long it might last. Um, 
the Federal Transit Administration has put up on their website a list of FAQs, frequently asked questions. So if you have questions about how you can spend these funds, there is really good direction right on their website. I was just looking at it right before we were on this call. And then what we've seen also, I would call is a little bit of a rebound. So for every action, as you know, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So some transit agencies said, hey, fares are free. And then people started flooding the buses and uh, too many people were on there. And then we had to maybe add extra vehicles and space things out and require um, social distancing on the bus. And so we'll talk about that. Some folks added masks as a requirement that people wear them. And then there was some reaction to that. And so then some people said like at SEPTA, never mind, we're just going to request it. We're not going to mandate it. Still others have mandated masks. Some folks are talking about where this will lead us. Does this lead us to the end of cash on transit systems? What's going to happen to fare boxes, et cetera? Also, I have some up-to-date information that I'll bring you later in the show on Wuhan, China. I've been talking with my colleagues overseas, and they are tracking day-to-day -day the ridership data from the, the epicenter of where this started. They're about three weeks to four weeks ahead of us in the recovery, evidently. And so they're seeing their ridership numbers come back up to 60 to 80%, uh, depending on the day and the route. So there's been a, a good recovery there. I've written an article that'll be in this coming month's magazine, Metro Magazine, on the five long-term implications of the coronavirus. And we'll talk about some of those implications as well. First off, though, let me introduce one of my best friends in the industry and a real leader, and that's Lauren Skyver. Lauren is in um, at Sunline Transit in Southern California and uh, is the leader in our, in our industry when it comes to alternative fuels, especially hydrogen fuels. She started a uh, center for excellence there, and I'll let her tell a little bit about herself and, what, uh, and introduce herself and her agency. Thanks a lot, Paul, and I really appreciate all of you for joining us today. It's going to be a very interesting roundtable, and I'm, I'm really happy to be a part of it. Um, I am the CEO for Sunline Transit Agency. We're in the desert. We're in uh, Coachella Valley, so if you know what Coachella Fest is, you know where we are, uh, which won't be happening this year until fall. Uh, we are the leader in zero emission technology, and I just want to let you know, uh, I was not a climate change person before I came here. I worked at Delaware, where it was a completely diesel uh, fleet, and really was introduced to the notion of zero emission when I got here to Sunline. And, and I actually, I'm pursuing a degree in environmental science now because I believe so much in climate change and what we as fleet providers can do. Our agency is very focused on zero emission. We don't run any solid fuel here. Uh, we have uh, 19 fuel cell buses and the largest electrolyzer producing hydrogen in the United States here on our property. So we're very versed in both electric and fuel cell vehicles, which a fuel cell vehicle, if you didn't know, is really just an electric vehicle with a fuel cell as the range extender. Um, I do want to talk to you all about where we were in time and where we think we're going to be in the future um, and how we're going to stay positive moving forward as being an agency that provides a very needed service to our community and how transit can position itself to continue to grow in the future. Excellent. Thank you. Lauren is, um, uh, is, um, working to continue to stay in a leadership position. I think now more than ever, Lauren, I've, I've seen uh, just a quick follow-up question. I've seen lots of video captions of over LA and how the sky is cleared. It's like a miracle yes. <laughs> and, and all the cars aren't running. Right. And so this kind of just lines right up with what you're talking about, the importance of us, you know, keeping the environment clean. And one way we can do that is to put more people on clean vehicles like buses. Exactly. And we don't need to stop our energy around those programs within our agencies and within our communities. These types of efforts do need to keep moving forward while we still hash out 
who are we going to be in the future? And so talking about what your, your agency has as a zero emission bus project or vehicle project is still something that's active and should be active and actually engages your agency in a positive step forward in, in the future. Thank you. Peter Stark, who is general manager of Whatcom Transportation Authority. Tell us a little bit about your agency, where you're located and, and about yourself. Well, first of all, I'm Pete Stark, General Manager of uh, Wycombe uh, Transportation, or WTA, in Bellingham, Washington. If you headed west on I-10 to Los Angeles from the desert, straight north on I-5 till they asked you for a passport, you'd be in Wycombe County, Washington, very northwest corner of the United States. Um, so Bellingham is the county seat. It's a town of about 90,000. It's an hour and a half uh, plus traffic from either Seattle or Vancouver, BC. Uh, we're a small urban system. Uh, our UZA is about 140,000, but our service area is 230,000. So we have both a strong urban component and, and a rural system as well. Uh, there's a Division One university in or Division Two university in town and a large community college. About 40% student ridership, but about 60% everything else. Uh, we're sales tax funded. Um, uh, Washington is uh, generous about sales tax authority in Washington State. Many municipalities have taken it up. Um, so that allows systems in Washington, frankly, to punch above their weight in terms of the size of the community. Um, our community's got high expectations because they've seen service at TransLink in Vancouver. They've seen service at KC Metro in Seattle. And so they know what a good transportation system uh, can be, and that's what they want. Um, our current situation, we're, ridership's down about 85%. Uh, I've got a board, whiteboard uh, that I'm glancing at right now that has all the things I never thought I would do. Discourage ridership. <laughs> Tell people to get in the back door. Tell people, no, I don't want your money. Ride free. Tell people where to sit. Tell people, uh, well, you're 66. You're too old to come to work. You should stay home till this is over. Wow. Yeah a long list. It's like our worlds have been turned upside down here. Yeah. Um, to, to go back to, to Lauren's message, though, uh, I want to remind everybody that today is Earth Day, and it's the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. And so let's just think for a minute. Uh, our nation, out of nowhere, committed 2.2 terabucks. <laughs> yeah, not gigabucks, not megabucks, terabucks to, to this epidemic. And we all turned on a dime to do a lot of things we never thought we could do. What if we put that in climate change and climate action instead? Hmm? Uh, Bellingham, uh, well, we, ha we have a governor in Washington State who ran on climate policy for, president, for the presidency. He didn't make it. But uh, we do in Whatcom County and in Bellingham have climate action plans for our communities um, that are our electeds, my board members are dead serious about. Um, Washington generally is headed down a path toward electrification. Um, and so we're, we're started down that path. I built a bus yard that'll charge 12 electric buses. And we're looking at how we would face to, to do our entire fleet. Um, Thank you. That's one of our areas looking forward. And really the, uh, I'll, I'll pass the mic because I think Paul, you'll get back to this later. Yeah, we'll get back to it. Yeah, it's a good point you make, Peter. Um, it's kind of interesting. It is the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. For those who are interested, both Peter and Lauren talked about alternative fuels. That actually is our quarterly innovation show this quarter on Transit Unplugged. If you haven't had a chance to listen to it, it's one of our most highly anticipated and highest listened to shows we've ever done. 
and it's on alternate fuels or zero emission buses. And Lawrence Skyber is a guest talking about all three of the main fuels. Uh, and then we've got Gary Thomas on from Dallas DART, who talks about CNG, which they're big and using. And then we had Ryan Popple on, who at the time was CEO and still is, I think, executive director, uh, is his title now, at, um, um, at the electric bus company, uh, Proterra and uh, the, one of the leading bus electric manufacturers in the United States and in Canada. And so all three of them talk about it in depth. If you want an in-depth, detailed description of what's happening with alternative fuels, that's the show to listen to. And now we're going to go to Elia Carey. Elia is a friend I made recently uh, in the last couple of months, really through LinkedIn, since nobody's traveling. She was uh, impressed by some of the uh, stuff we were putting out, and I was impressed by some of the respondents she was giving me. She is a... Um, she told me her job, I don't know if you want me to say it this way, Elliot, but is to help make millionaires into billionaires because she works with uh, startup tech firms in Silicon Valley and helps them kind of message what their product is about and how to, how to get investment. And that, of course, is what we need here in the transit industry. We need to make sure that our messaging is correct so we can continue to get uh, as, as much revenue as we can from the sources that we are trying to right now, particularly getting passengers back on the bus once we're through this. Elia, the floor yeah. is yours. Hey, thank you. Um, yeah, I um, have work in very early stage tech startup and also work with uh, venture capitalist firms and, and individually too. So millionaires on their way to becoming millionaires. I can't take credit for any billionaires yet, but um, uh, it certainly has been very interesting. And I, I think the really relevant point with transit in this particular moment is how, um, like I, I've been trained to learn when is the right moment to strike to introduce something really disruptive and really innovative and change a way of thinking about an entire industry often. And I think that that's where I get the greatest kick out of thinking about public transit right now is this particular moment of really being able to change everybody's perception. And obviously those perceptions have already begun to shift with the, um, support from the federal government and even support from individuals, just emotional support for public transit as they begin to realize just really that it really does matter that a grocery store clerk has a cheap and affordable and reliable and safe way to get to work. Um, so I, I, came to, I came to public transit and my interest in it, I'm a longtime geek and fan and can remember, you know, the numbers of buses from when I was a child and I've wrote a, written on a number of transit systems nationwide over the years and lived in a lot of different places. But really what sealed it for me was this um, uh, getting anxiety about um, COVID and about the lockdown and realizing that um, I could focus my attention on something concrete that could really help working people and really make a difference in people's daily lives, and which is very different from what I've been I've been doing. Not necessarily helping working people, and um, uh, also make a planet level difference. Um, and there's this notion, especially now, I think, in, in still in some camps to think of public transit as being dull, dirty, and dangerous. And um, I, I think that we've got a great opportunity to shift that to like liberating, healthy, and heroic, and clean. And you know, I, we're going to talk a lot today about cleaning, I think, and, and, and building trust with riders um, to come back because these buses are clean and, and it's a safe way to do things. But then what's really exciting to me is that we get to slip in and start to penetrate with this other message about 
um, clean, keeping the environment clean and the role of um, the environment in global pandemic and the role in the environment in vulnerability in certain populations that have to live in really polluted areas. So I've been very excited to be able to think about how to integrate all that into marketing uh, on behalf of public transit. Thank you. Thank you for that feedback. All right, let's move on to my buddy Sam Sargent, who uh, represents a youth brigade here today, I guess, and uh, and uh, is going to bring us what's uh, a little bit about himself and what he works, what he's working on down there in the capital city of Texas. With sure. my Randy. Yeah, well, thank you, Paul, for for having me. Really excited to be on on a panel with with some illustrious colleagues, and uh, this is going to be really fun. But uh, yeah, we're here uh, in Austin, Texas. Uh, Capital Metro serves Austin as well as six other suburban communities outside of Austin. Uh, our service area has a population of about 1.1 million. Uh, for everybody who has been reading any amount of news over the past one year, five years, 10 years, Austin has been on a, uh, a pretty startling uh, growth curve, which is, a, which is a good thing, but we're here to help manage that. Um, we cover about 535 square miles. Uh, we are funded uh, principally by sales tax, about 80%. Uh, so obviously that has taken quite a hit. We are waiting uh, to really get the, really go into depth on the those details when we get our comptroller's report, probably in the next couple of days. We suspect that we are probably down revenue-wise in the 50% range, ridership-wise about 65%, which as Paul mentioned earlier, is probably about average for the nation. I know there are some very high and a couple of very low outliers, but we're down 65%. We've reduced service maybe by 20 or 30%. So that gives you a sense of even with those reductions, we have a lot of people here who are now able to telework. We have a lot of people here who unfortunately are unemployed. Um, and uh, similar to Pete, we've taken a lot of precautions that we never thought we would have to do. Uh, we have been on a 17 month um, ridership increase each month ever since we did a system redesign. Uh, Lauren had mentioned some of the, the gains they've had there in, in uh, Coachella Valley, but yeah, we've been very proud of, uh, of uh, changing the narrative on transit here. We've done a lot of wonderful work. I'm very proud of the team that we've got, but um, now we're telling people to avoid taking our service unless it's for essential trips. We, uh, we are not taking any, we've gone fare free not free fares, I should point that out. This is not a promotion, <laughs> we just are not accepting fares. Um, we've also done a variety of, of things to make sure that our operators, customers, and the community at large are safe. We've distributed masks to all of our frontline employees. Um, we've got hand sanitizer, we've got midday cleanings, things like that. So at the end of the day, um, we will all get through this together, but I think as this conversation is gonna go on, we can really talk about how do we continue to tell the story of transit? How do we continue to tell people what our value is? And I think as we're all experiencing, since we're all uh, not able to be here in the same place, I think people will realize, even if they're a little bit afraid of enclosed spaces and of being near too many people, that we need people and that we need institutions and we need experts. And so I, I think that we'll come out of this with a much greater appreciation of those things. And then it's incumbent upon all of us to, to remind them why transit is, is so important. So look forward to the conversation. So Excellent. that's me in a nutshell. And Sam, just tell us what your role is there at your agency. Oh, yeah, my apologies. Uh, so I'm the deputy chief of staff. I work for our uh, CEO, Randy Clark, who some of you may have met or, uh, or seen all over the place. That's kind of his energy, which is a great thing. 
Um, but I really focus on our external relations group. So that's government relations, community engagement, marketing communications, work very closely with our planning team. Excellent. And uh, Sam and I were on a panel together at a conference a few months ago when we could all still be together. And that's how we got yes. to a little bit better. So yeah. Sunny San Diego. There you go. Well, speaking of uh, sunny San Diego, it was while I was at that conference that I took a break and drove up to Lauren's office and met with her and got to tour her hydrogen plant, which was amazing. Uh, so Lauren, tell us about what's going on there. Let's, let's take a, a trip back for, you know, 40 days or whatever, and tell us about what happened there at Sunline when this hit. Tell us about the crisis communication, the decision-making you had to make there, Bring us up to speed on what's been happening. Well, just like some of my colleagues, I mean, we were seeing ridership increases. We were really energized on finding new ways for municipalities or other partners to we had just signed a big contract with Cal State San Bernardino, who was really in the transit business moving students from one campus to another to do that service for them, really feeling like we had found a stride in taking non-traditional routes to getting more riders on our vehicles. We had taken over the Buzz service, which is a service that runs in the city of Palm Springs that they are paying an outside provider to do. We did it for a fraction of the cost. And really for us, it's butts and seats, excuse my French. Um, and we really saw it as a ridership climb, which it absolutely ended up being. Um, we were about to commission our new station and have a Earth Day celebration to commission that publicly. And just everything seemed so positive for us. Um, it felt like the staff had really gotten a sense of confidence in decision-making, had started to spread their wings on how do they think outside the box and ex explore. We're very entrepreneurial in the alternative fuel side and we started to become way more entrepreneurial in our approach to service delivery. COVID-19 hits. Um, the one thing I will tell those of you on the phone, especially if you're up and coming, moving to the C-suite, looking to be a CEO, I think that the first thing we noticed uh, with the pandemic was crisis communication. We learned what we had in place, which was a lot of good pillars that we had in place, things that had never been tested and were a little shakier in how we communicated. And then how people in our group, in our team, as Brent had mentioned, I think Peter did as well, and, and also, Leah, how people came together around this crisis and how we could tap into that to move things forward quicker. Um, I think that you also, if you are uh, ambitious and looking to move your career, all the training you get in decision making, absolutely, you need to take to heart and you need to practice because this has been one of the biggest tests of decision making skills for me as a CEO. And I have 25 plus years in the business along with my C-suite staff and those managers and staff below them. So decision-making is something that cannot wait until you feel like the risk is too great when you're in the middle of something as big as we're in the middle of right now. It takes really being less risk averse and more about what's best for everyone, including your employees, your writers, your communities, your board, everyone, and taking a stand on making decisions that you won't be perfect at but that you'll make many good ones because you acted. And I think that that's been something that our agency has done first in California to do rear boarding, first in California to suspend fares. Um, and it was risky. I got some negativity from others in the community about taking this risk. We have laws that require us to collect fares. It's called TDA recovery ratio. And you know, it was a risk. I had folks saying that you're gonna get your funding cut off 
And you know what, for our team, it's like, we're going to do what's best for our riders and for our employees and for allowing people to rear board and to not pay fares so that we can continue our service. And so I think the decision-making and the things you know about yourself and your team are things that I want you to keep concentrating on through the crisis and as you move out of it, and that we don't get away from that quick decision-making, risk averseness, thinking outside the box that we've had to do in this crisis. Let's continue that into the next phases of our organization, into our recovery plans. I think sometimes we respond to a crisis and then we go back to who we were as an organization or as a person when it's over. I'm encouraging all of us to keep that entrepreneurial spirit, that can-do spirit going forward, even as we move through the crisis. That's wonderful, Lauren. Thank you. Any other, uh, let's get a little cross-talk too if we want. Peter, Elia, Sam, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I'd love to jump in on that because we spent some time uh, earlier this week reviewing all the decisions we've made since uh, the first case in Whatcom County, which was on March 7th. And uh, as Lauren pointed out, it was astounding how fast you can move if you're focused. And um, so we've gone through and tried to document now in retrospect, what was the, the trade-off? Uh, because at some point we're gonna have to, un, you know, between uh, the, the risk trade-off. Um, it's been astonishing to my team um, that we've been able to make so many decisions so fast. Uh, one of my uh, cliches is they call it fixed route for a reason. And, and frankly, we have people in our industry who value that it's fixed. You know, and they know what they're going to see when they're when they come into work in the morning. So that's another thing that's been totally totally upended. And I'll have to say, most of the younger people on my team, uh, they're okay with that. They're okay with this new pace. And um, they probably thought some of us have been fixed a little too long. <laughs> so, Pete, at your place, are you? Um... Uh, I just heard some, you know, we all heard some terrible news out of New Jersey Transit yesterday. One of their senior officials had passed away due to uh, COVID. And then I got word this morning that an additional uh, one of their top executives maybe uh, was, was also infected. Um, are you all practicing social distancing or whatever you want to call it among your executive staff there? Well, first of all, don't tell my wife what you just said. <laughs> well, it was in the news. Uh, so yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, I, we usually only have one person on the executive staff at a time reporting to work in the building. That's good. Uh, we're yeah. doing all of our work, uh, even our incident management team uh, through virtual meetings. And so that social distancing has been pretty important. Yeah. Uh, there's been transit uh, driver fatalities in Washington state. So this is pretty real to people up here. Yes. And Sam, what are you all doing in Texas? So we've taken a relatively hands-on approach uh, during this um, during this crisis. We have divided up our senior team uh, between four or five different facilities for those who are not teleworking, but it's to make sure that we have a seven-day-a-week presence. Uh, so I'm, I'm here right now at our at our headquarters building downtown in Austin uh, today, but it's just me and two other people on a full city block floor, so plenty of distance, but. Uh, we have repurposed a lot of our uh, administrative staff into operations support roles. Um, we wanted to make sure that we were getting out there and managing the additional cleanings, still providing a presence, especially to let our operators know that they were not the only ones being asked to go out there and to put this essential service on the streets. Um, but we've also found ways for many of our administrative staff who might be caretakers, have an underlying health condition, whatever it might be, 
to still pitch in uh, if they have bandwidth, because we now have some departments that have more bandwidth than they did before the crisis began. There are, we are not doing public meetings, for instance. Our treasury department is closed. So you have some areas where somebody might have some expertise and another department may have a project that's been put on the back burner for some time and they're able to lend a hand remotely. Um, I think uh, going to, to Pete's remark, you know, some people have been a little bit energized, if that's the right word for it by this, but it has definitely been an opportunity to cross train. It's been an opportunity to see where we didn't have redundancies. Um, doesn't matter if you're in the same department, but you know, if paratransit dispatch goes down, is there somebody who can come back and manage that group? Maybe it's just because they're a good people manager. Maybe they're good with the technology things like that. Um, so we've got a lot of people doing a lot of different roles. And my hope is that when we come out of this, people appreciate the breadth of what a transit agency does. So if you've been in IT for 10 years, you're probably fantastic at that. Maybe you love it. But all of a sudden, you finally see what planning does, what marketing does, what our fare collectors do. So I think there's a lot of good to come out of this, if, if that's the right word for it, but there's, there is a lot to learn. Um, I've learned a lot, so I, I think, I'm sure my colleagues have, have as well. That's wonderful. What are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, COVID University is what we're all going to. It's like, a, it's like a modern day version of the school of hard knocks, right? Um, I had this thought about failure. We talk about failure a lot in Silicon Valley and, and um, uh, not quite worship at the altar of failure, but um, there, for example, there used to be a conference here called FailCon where um, founders came in and talked about things that didn't work. And, um, you know, that just gets incorporated into more learning. And I, I, I think, I mean, I, I have mixed feelings about the old Zuckerberg statement of um, move, move fast, break things. But um, if like Lauren's pointing out, your values begin to really line up when, when the pressure is on, right? And so it's like, yes, we have the value of, um, of our funding for sure, but we're gonna choose what's right for our riders and let the funding fall where it may. You know, that's, that's huge. And um, when, when, you're, when you're clear on your values, the emergency makes you clear on your values, you're clear on your values, you make values-based decisions, you might fail, but you'll never, um, you'll, you never will have failed yourself. I, I say this thing a lot that is, um, I may not like every situation I'm in, but it is imperative that I like myself when I'm in it. And um, I think that we're beginning to see that even more, you know, in in a, in a lot of different areas. But I certainly see it happening among um, the transit CEOs I'm paying attention to right now. That's good. One of the, uh, as Sam said, you know, there are some good things that can come out of even a bad situation like this. And I think we've all seen that in our lives, right? That stumbling stones can become building blocks. So one of the things I've seen uh, that a lot of agencies are doing since I work for Trapeze, a technology company, is that they're learning to use the technology they already have even better. You know, I always say, you know, I used to be a power user of PASS software, which is our big paratransit software. I ran, helped run the the call center and the paratransit service for Washington DC Metro for five years when I worked for MV. And uh, I was probably like the average user. I used probably about 20% of what that software could do. And there's so many other capacities that you can do with the software you have. And so, and what happens unfortunately is that 
over time, you know, the initial dispatchers and reservationists all get trained on the software, you know, really in depth, and they might know how to use 70% of it. But then as time goes on and new people come in, they may, you know, if it's a rush or hurry and you don't have enough people to make a whole class, maybe you give somebody, you know, eight hours on the software and then they're sitting next to Sally who's giving them, you know, the ticks, the trips and ticks, <laughs> trips of, uh, of how to do this, and they don't really learn how to use it all the way. And so right now people are realizing, oh yeah, that IVR that I've got, I can use that software to mass call all of my certified ADA disabled customers and give them messaging on, hey, we've got food delivery that is coming out and uh, you can pick it up at here or if you'd like to have meals on wheels, you know, and so you're figuring out I can do reverse calls or you're figuring out that, hey, since we can't have all our reservationists together in one call center anymore, we need to really be utilizing uh, online booking tools better for people to take to book their trips or using their phone to book a trip. And uh, maybe I don't have that phone capacity right now. Maybe I've just got the online. I need to go to app-based booking. I know that not everyone will be comfortable with it, but even if only 20% of our riders are comfortable with using the app-based booking, that'll help a lot in making things get smoother and better run. Lauren, what do you think about that using technology in a time like this to really help? Are you all seeing any of that there? Yeah, and I think that that's part of what an emergency requires, right? Instead of the I'm going to someday, it's I got to do it today. <laughs> and I think that that's what we've seen as an agency. And we've really had some stars come out um, that are not in IT, but have taken the time to understand how a program or something that supports communication or us doing things virtually or us doing things better um, I think as Sam said so eloquently, um, we also are tapping on folks that are working remotely. So our situation is a little different. Everybody here is working. We don't have anyone that's completely teleworking. We're a small agency. All of our non-essential staff are on A and B schedules. They work two days in, two days out, so we can keep the work flowing. All of our chiefs and executives are coming in every day. Um, everyone's in a closed door space. So we've done some things to create the social distancing. But we didn't have the luxury as a small agency of necessarily just shutting the doors and having everybody go home. So that's required a new level of technology for us to be able to stay connected. It's really stretched a two-person IT department. So we're small, 350 employees. You know, we've really had to get creative on how are we going to keep everybody supported. And I think people at home that are working their two days off, we have just, as Paul said, been able to give them tasks that are based on enriching what they know about the agency or helping another department so that they actually get an education, not just on transit, but on what we really do. Because don't you all agree that you work in, in transit? Sometimes we have a gap of what finance really knows what our product is. And right now, everybody at Sunline knows what the product is. And, and I'm actually encouraged by that. These are the positive messages we keep taking out of a pretty crappy situation is that right now everybody that works here absolutely understands what the mission is and i'm thankful and grateful for that that's wonderful thoughts from anyone else on the panel about that well i wanted to jump in and share some of the remote working we're doing uh, we're using um, pass and our reservationists our csrs are all working at home taking the calls and booking the rides and they're doing that uh, basically working remotely um, not not through a VPN, but but uh, remote desktop. Okay, that's great. And we're, we have a, a VoIP phone system, so they can take an agency phone, plug it into their laptop. We had to provide several several of them mobile data hotspots because they live in rural areas in the county and don't have broadband at their house. 
So uh, our finance department, uh, the payroll people, the AP people are, are working from home and uh, accepting payroll, processing payroll, processing vendor payments. Um, so we're able to do a lot of that remotely. We are able to uh, work with, with Trapeze and with uh, other vendors to flip our schedule quickly and make a service change in a week that normally, normally would take three months. Um, yes. That was good. We have been looking at uh, a, the, um, the mobile app product. We were going to do it in relation with a, a grant opportunity. We won uh, innovations and mobility integration. Uh, we got a federal grant award to provide uh, app-based on-demand service in one of our small communities. So, isolated community half an hour from the rest of the of our service area and 50 percent of the trips in that community are made within the city limits so it seemed like a great opportunity for uh, an on-demand service experiment we're not quite launching that yet but uh, several of the transit agencies around us in, in salem in olympia um, have gone to demand on demand only service no fixed route they suspended it so we want to look at their lessons and learn from that and uh, roll that service out fairly quickly once we are able to open things back up. That's great. Um, we want to let folks know that if you have a, uh, those who are um, participants in the webinar, if you have a question for one of the panelists, feel free to enter it in your uh, webinar chat window and we'll see if we can, uh, uh, on the Q&A section, we'll see if we can get to some of those questions. Here's one um, that we received which I'll get to in just a minute. But first, I want to comment on a couple things you just mentioned, Peter, which is some of the cool new approaches that people are taking to transit. Uh, our good friend, Nat Ford, who is CEO of Jacksonville Transit, has been working on autonomous vehicles for quite some time. Uh, and he has got some national press last week. He was using his AVs, his autonomous vehicles, to transport the swab tests at a drive-through testing facility back to the Mayo Clinic with no one on board. I think it's the first usage of an autonomous bus in America without a safety driver or concierge on board. A great way to utilize it. And you wonder if people are going to want more of that in the future, these autonomous vehicles, as we move more to a low-touch environment uh, and, and you know, reduce interactions. A lot of agencies have put up the plexiglass shields beside the drivers, and some have told me they've even put up shower curtains because they had no other option to keep people back. That's not a good look for the long term, obviously, but, but, um, but these are some of the innovative approaches people are taking. In San Antonio, Texas, which uh, down near Sam Sargent's, uh, the, the, our CEO there told me, Steve, that he has put in the Wi-Fi in their paratransit vehicles, and they've taken those vehicles out, and uh, Jeff Arndt told me this, and they've put them out in apartment complexes where they don't have Wi-Fi for the kids to do their homework, and so they're putting them there, and the signal travels out of the van for maybe 200 yards and allows people in the apartment complexes to be able to have their kids do their schoolwork, so lots of unique ways uh, that people are adapting. One other adaptation that I picked up out of Canada this week, uh, one transit agency has gone to rear door boarding. And as a result of that, they can't open the wheelchair lift for people at the front, which is where it's at. So they're not able to board people that need a wheelchair as a uh, mobility device onto the vehicle. And so they're now are they uploaded all of their fixed route bus stops into the software or past software and uh, as, as stops where they can now send a paratransit vehicle to pick the person up at the fixed route stop. Other people that have gone to social distancing on the vehicle and are only allowing maybe 20 passengers on a 40 passenger bus are following that bus 
with another one immediately after. So that uh, if they're riding through and the 20th person is on board and they have to tell the passengers, sorry, no more, they don't have to wait 20 minutes till the next bus comes. There is a follow-up bus right behind them. These are some of the innovations I've heard happening. Sam uh, or Lauren, anyone, any other things on any innovations that you're doing, uh, have been doing or are doing, you wanna share? Go ahead, Sam. Sure. Um... I think that this has also been an opportunity for us to sort of speed up uh, kind of moving ahead with um, utilizing the technology that we already have, not allowing anybody, especially on the paratransit side, to uh, to rely on paper manifests, for instance, uh, so that we can get that out of our system. And, and we too have moved our uh, reservations folks on the paratransit side uh, on our micro transit service, uh, as well as our customer service folks uh, into remote work setups, which is really big because one, uh, real estate is very expensive uh, in Austin at the moment. Um, and uh, we're, this allows us to reduce our footprint by a bit. But the other thing too, and I'm sure probably everybody here has experienced this, is that you know if you're a, a brand new customer care center agent, you may be at one of our lower pay grades. And more often than not, you also have one of the longest commutes. And we've Think that this could wind up being a huge retention tool to allow these folks to do the work from home. They could do it part-time more easily uh, if they're a caretaker, if they're a parent. Um, so we've seen a lot of employee benefits to that. Um, but we've also repurposed some of our vehicles. We're using some of our Metro Express over-the-road coaches, which are not uh, being used at the moment because we suspended Metro Express service as mobile hotspots uh, through a partnership with our local school district and the libraries. And uh, we've also uh, have a lot of paratransit vehicles that are not getting the amount of trips they used to get. We're using that in partnership with the food bank to take uh, care kits, so meal kits once a week to homebound uh, paratransit clients. Um, that's been a, a really big success. We've had over 100,000 meals delivered so far. Um, so there, there is a, there's a light there. Um, and uh, but yes, it has made us all a lot more nimble, and I think that we'll be well served by that going forward. Elliot, what do you I was just thinking about this. This the word "weird" came to mind, and it's not so much that anyone is talking uh, just right now about things that are so weird, but I, I just had the thought that this really resets our expectation of what's weird and what's different and, and certainly has radically reset our expectations about what is difficult you know things that were like oh that feels a little bit too much like work you know we're we now um managed to accomplish really really quickly and um it makes both services that are provided um just willing to flip and and innovate and do something different a lot faster yes. and uh, also makes the acceptance level really, really different. You know, um, board, boarding in the you know boarding boarding in the rear or um, sitting a couple of seats apart. You know, that's that that would have been weird and um, or even like almost criminal <laughs> in a rear boarding. San Francisco only went to rear boarding a couple of years ago. Um, so you know what? Yeah. Just the reset of that level has made a whole realm of things possible that we didn't ever consider before. 
I think we have to consider, and I, I see there's a question about future configurations of buses with um, reduced capacity. And, and I, I don't know that that won't be part of our future. Uh, we were an agency that went to Sunday service right away so that we could take all our extra resources and run them on the productive lines so that we, we call them ghost buses. That's not what we call them in the public, but those of you on this call may know that term. Um, and that was done early on the, the first week of March, we made these decisions so that we knew, because we're in California as well, that social distancing was gonna be important. I think that we have to find a balance between what is going to be social distancing and public transit, meaning multiple, many riding one vehicle. I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done in that area. And I think our OEMs and our partners who are already tackling what is this gonna be the new norm for us, and what, as Aaliyah said, will not be weird anymore. I think Sunline's gonna be open to the question that was put on the floor to whatever best practices are as far as uh, capacity on vehicles. But we still do need to maintain the many to one ratio of what is the benefit of public transit. And so um, that doesn't mean that it has to be a 40 foot bus with 40, 60 people on board either, but we've got to get used to that idea before we can sell it to others. And we have to be innovative of what that's going to look like and how it's going to meet all of these different components of what we have to do for safety and still maintain the benefit of public transit. So I think to the question that OEMs are already understanding that this probably is not going to be something that's temporary and maybe something that lasts much longer. And how will we create social distancing on our buses and trains? Um, and to Sam's point, how will we reinvent ourselves to um, create new services? that we wanted to do, that we competed with, that now we have every opportunity to operate and create ourselves. That's great. I, uh, our friend Peter Varga just texted me. Peter is, of course, uh, from, the, from the Rapid, former chair of APTA. He's listening and he said, uh, one thought in listening to your CEO roundtable, Lauren talked about how everyone at Sunline knows what their business is as a value. In places where management seems to be disassociated from employees as they are struggling with recovery, I see no loyalty to those running the system. I see quite a range in this area. And so the idea is having high level of employee engagement and loyalty seems high when the senior executives are able to kind of, you know, be there with them like you're doing, Sam, right? Aren't you right out there with the drivers right now helping them? Yeah, 100%. We, we have, uh, Randy Clark, our CEO, has asked that every member of senior staff be a part of these um, midday cleaning crew supervisor teams, or at least doing field visits. Uh, we've been doing as much operator appreciation as we can. Um, I mean, yeah, we, we are doing everything we can to show that we are out there and that we are walking the walk. Um, and it's important. It's important to know that we're all in this together, because if there, if there was ever a time that we were, it, it is now. That's good. Um, any other thoughts on, uh, so we've kind of covered how we got to where we're at and what happened, and now we're kind of transitioning to where we're at right now. And then in a few minutes, we'll transition to how, around three o'clock, we'll try to transition and have a half hour talking about the future. Uh, I have a couple more thoughts about what I want to share about today, but I want to offer anyone else who's a panelist, um, any thoughts on what you're doing right now? I wanted to offer a suggestion and many of you may be doing it, um, but our marketing team again has been super creative. And so we have a, a Coachella Valley Heroes program that's launching next week. We've wrapped buses with thank yous to central workers and our transit workers. We've taken all of our shelters that don't have a paid advertisement. And many of them, we are putting these same campaign materials, thanking hospitals, grocery stores, everyone for coming together as a community. 
Um, I think that's really easy to do. It takes a little money to wrap the vehicle, but I, it's something we can do that's a mobile message of teamwork and community strong. You can call it community tough as New York is, is, is doing. But I do think that these are the positive projects that your team can be working on that energize people, that get them to rally around. And the fence setters really can't because there's too much excitement about talking about as an agency, how we have continued to operate, continued to support our employees, along with all the other employees that are essential workers, along with the community. So I offer that as a suggestion. If anyone isn't working on a campaign like that, please call, uh, contact me and I can put you in, charge with, uh, in touch with our chief of marketing. Because our group is really focused on positive messaging through social media. We send out social media um, tweets and, and different kinds of messaging all the time about how great our operators are. It creates a dialogue and the operators see that. They see the community responding to these social media messages. These are all things that are done internally to create that positive message externally. And we get some negative, you know, we get some negative in that. But we, it far outweighs the positive on how the community responds to our operators and gives them appreciation for what they're doing. So those are really simple things that you're probably all doing. But if you're not, think about how you can do it at your agency in whatever profile or envelope you have to work in. Yeah, I had this thought too, um, that I was trying to, trying to figure out like, where do people feel they're safest? And I think we feel we feel the safest at home right now, right? We understand our own protocols. And I'm thinking in terms of cleaning and the role of cleaning and demonstrating cleaning for public transit to rebuild trust with riders. Um, this is like I know what I can control right here, and I know exactly what I'm going to do when I get home. So I think that that while while I love and never want to lose the public transit, you know, bus driver as a hero picture. I think that's just like, that's so inspirational and worthwhile. <clears throat> I also like the idea of making a really direct parallel between um, you clean your home, you feel safe in your home, you're following safe protocols in your home. This is our home and we're creating safe protocols in this home and you know that's going to make everybody safe and drawing that more of a like everyday hero or a parallel directly between um, uh, bus systems and employees and bus employees and transit employees and um, how safe we feel in our in our own homes. I think that's a good foundational um, marketing message to get out right now. You know, there, I believe in linkage uh, in people's minds. And so that's what you're talking about. You know, Kissinger talked about linkage back in the 70s. And, and I think linkage now, you know, at the um, in Baltimore, where I was a CEO, I tried to get the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra and the Ravens and the Orioles connected these, these institutions in the community that people already held in high esteem. I tried to link transit to them because we had a very low... Um, image in the community, the MTA did, because we had basically, in my opinion, been lying to the passengers every day for the last 20 years and telling them the bus was going to be there at a certain time. And we never were, it seemed like. And so people just lost uh, their, their trust and confidence in the MTA as an agency. And so one of the ways, in addition to actually trying to improve the on-time performance and figure out why our radio signals weren't working and all that, that my COO, John Duncan, was working on, the other thing I wanted to do was improve our image in the community through linkage. And that's what we're talking about here. And so, uh, so for instance, one of the ideas I've had, it wasn't original with me, I had somebody, somebody else mention it, but I've been trying to promote it, is the idea that, um, you know, when you go into a 
when we used to go into restaurants and go into the bathroom, on the back of the door, there was a sign there. It said, this restroom is cleaned by, you know, person so-and-so at 1 p.m. This was cleaned at 2 p.m. This cleaned at 3 p.m. And it just kind of nice looking at saying, okay, this bathroom, you know, all the high touch surfaces and everything got cleaned an hour ago, within the hour. And I know that a lot of transit agencies um, are maybe not able to clean every hour, but they're able to clean the buses, you know, maybe every two hours at the end of a run. And they're doing that right now. They've got cleaners out. It's not just at the end of the night. Why not put that on our destination sign right up front and say, this bus cleaned at 2 p.m., you know, Tuesday, uh, April 21st. And then it changes at 4 p.m. Just to get people standing at the bus stop, the idea, okay, I mean, if we're going to try to start recovering the trust and confidence after our politicians, and I'm a recovering politician, so I can say this, after our politicians have told people, oh, transit is a Petri dish, you know, it's a terrible place, you know, stay off it. And I get the drift that it's for essential workers, but I don't like the image they portrayed because I don't think it is a Petri dish. I think um, it all depends on just like anything else. It's what you make of it. Just like a Target or a Walmart store isn't a Petri dish any more than a small retail establishment is. And we're wondering what's, why can't one be open when the other is, or et cetera. And people are, well, that's for essential uses. And that, that doesn't talk about the transmission of the disease. That's a marketing uh, position. So here on transit, a lot of uh, thoughts jammed into that comment I made. But um, here in transit, I think that uh, I'm agreeing with you is that we need to link in people's minds to where they feel safe. One other little tidbit. So when I used to run Baltimore MTA, the city ran their own service. They contracted with... Um, a company to do it. And it was called, uh, it was like a city shuttle. Uh, and it was different than the MTA buses. And they had seats called perimeter seating on their buses. We had regular seats one behind the other. And when we did surveys of passengers, everybody said they felt safer in perimeter seating because no one was behind them. And they felt like, you know, I feel safer in this vehicle and the circulator vehicle than I do in an MTA bus because of that. So the same kind of thinking I think we need to put in place. What makes people feel safe? We know that cops always like to sit in a restaurant with their back to the wall. They don't want anybody coming in behind them. If you ever had a police officer, it was a relative or a friend, they'll tell you that, right? We know that people like to sit with their back against the wall. They feel safer. Just what you said, Elia, people want to have a home that's cleaned with the cleaning things that they're used to and a regular protocol. So if we start, you know, this is a, a little university here on uh, best practices and what people are thinking and how to, how to have them kind of be attracted back on the bus. I think you've nailed it. We need to make them feel as at home in the transit vehicle as they do in their own home. Don't know if that's 100% possible, but we need to work on it. Thoughts from the panel? Sam, uh, this is this Sam. I I, I agree with you. Um, yeah, I, I think that 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 goes a very long way. I think that we've tried to do not through the head signs because we found that the head signs are somewhat complicated to <laughs> to update. But I do love that idea. Um, we do have real time uh, departure uh, information, so we've been trying to push messages there on our social media through all calls on the buses to make sure that people are aware of the efforts that we're putting into to this cleaning process. Um, I think another important thing about that, though, is when you think about it, I think it's another chance to show how much we care both about our frontline staff and our customers, because at the end of the day, whether or not you add a, you know, especially in the Coachella Valley, no different than Austin, when you add a shade structure uh, at a bus stop, you have dignified that person's trip. That's right. And especially if that's a person who cannot ride in their own vehicle because they don't have the luxury of being covered when the sun's out. And, and I've been telling people that when we've talked about these midday cleanings is that for somebody that's making an essential trip on one of our buses or for one of our operators, they don't have the luxury that 
any of us here right now in this webinar have. I'm in my office, some people may be in their home. I can clean this place if I wanted to, I can separate myself from the outside world, but these operators, this is their office. It is a rolling office for eight, 12, 16 hours in a given day. And so we owe it to them no different than our customers to make sure that it is at a standard that we would do for our own offices or our own homes. So I think there's a really good story to tell there about the level of care because uh, sometimes maybe that's just not projected or maybe there's mistrust of people in management. Um, but I think that that goes a very long way. Um, but yeah, Paul, I think you're right on in terms of rebuilding that trust uh, from the customer, especially the occasional customer or the never customer of uh, rebuilding it in every way you can to say, this is safe. This is no different than going to a grocery store in so many ways. And we're going to maintain it just as well as any other business would. It's great. Well, I just want to jump on Sam's comment there a minute. Uh, I'm making a point of going down to our stations and, and seeing the drivers and get, getting on the coaches and seeing what it's like on the coach. What does the signage look like? Are we maintaining the separations? Talk to the drivers, talk to the passengers. I had passengers thank me just this morning about what you're talking about. Uh, That's great. Both the dignity and the, and the cleaning. Uh, those messages are out there. That's good. Yeah. So it's the top of the hour, and we want to uh, shortly switch over to talking more about the future now and what our thoughts are about how we're going to trend out of this. I do want to comment on one part of transportation we haven't talked much about so far, uh, and that is commuter train and commuter buses. Uh, th that is a big industry in this country, and it has taken a bigger gut punch than regular transit. The CEOs I've talked to that run, for instance, Kevin Quinn, who uh, is the CEO at MTA in Baltimore, uh, has told me that some of their commuter services are down to 3% of their original ridership numbers. Uh, and 90% is about what I'm hearing across the country, 85, 90, 95%. Long Island Railroad has issued similar numbers. Uh, and they, I'm, I'm worried, are gonna take a little longer to come back because the white collar workers that Sam was talking about that can sit in their office uh, or sit at home and work from home, I think are gonna say, you know what? I think I'm gonna take a little bit longer till I get back on the vehicle and ride home. Or I may try to telecommute two or three days a week um, from home and then only go in uh, you know, for meetings, et cetera. And now, of course, we all figured out, hey, we can do meetings using Zoom or Teams or whatever, and we don't necessarily even all have to be together. Uh, and then the other concept, I think, is that uh, employers who are hurting after this shutdown may find ways to save money. And one way to do that is to reduce the floor space that they're renting and be able to do shared office space or allow more people to work from home. Um, and I just want to give everyone any, any, if anybody has any thoughts on that and any thoughts about, uh, do they agree with that? That I think, I think that's going to be a lagging indicator in transit, even beyond, behind regular, you know, buses and light rail and subway systems. So if, if the panel doesn't mind, since Capital Metro has uh, one commuter line that goes 32 miles out to one of our suburban communities and then runs through Austin into downtown. And then, as I mentioned before, as part of the Wi-Fi hotspot program, we have Metro Express vehicles. I believe that we have 35 to 40 of these coaches and they're currently not being used because between rail and Metro Express, um, we were down, I believe about 94%. So that's about close to, to the average Paul, Paul was mentioning, whereas the rest of the system is about 65%. Um, but it's gonna take a while, especially to get those types of services to recover because of who those customers are and what their work situations are like. And uh, I don't have an answer for this, uh, but I would say that teleworking might be worse 
for transit in some ways than an automobile <laughs> because it is the absence of a commute. Um, and I don't have a solution ready yet uh, because I think there's a lot of benefits to teleworking. I think flexibility is fantastic. I think not having a commute unless you're using Sunline and you've got hydrogen buses you can take, which is amazing, um, is, is great for the environment. But at some point we will need to figure out how to come to grips with that real, what may be one of the biggest changes that comes out of this whole public health and economic situation is we've had this revitalization of downtowns. We've had employers moving downtowns and expanding their footprints there. What does teleworking do um, for that segment of, of, all of, our, of all of our customer bases? We know a hotel worker can't telework, but there are a lot of people out there who just might not be making any trips, whether it be car or transit. Yeah, I think we're going to see a resizing of some of the service levels that people put on uh, commuter trains and commuter buses. Uh, in Maryland, we have 350 motor coaches that we outsource every day. And uh, of course, we're way down on the numbers right now. I think it's going to be a slower recovery. Unfortunately, a lot of that work is contracted out to companies like Bombardier, Amtrak, and motor, local motor coach companies who run a lot of these services. And they're the ones that are hurting. I mean, we saw Virgin trains shut down completely in Florida as a result of this. Uh, the Brightline trains, and we've seen uh, suspension of service um, around these for-profit companies that are running. We've seen the scooters be pulled out of the cities in a lot of cities. Uh, we've seen a lot of impact. So this movement we were having as an industry toward mobility as a service and kind of a reorienting of transit agencies as the aggregator of uh, the even for-profit uh, mobility in a city. I think we're going to see some adjustments um, and we could talk about that in a minute. I'd like to kick that out on the floor in just a moment. But I, and I think we're also going to see people utilizing some of those that remain. So for instance, somebody mentioned earlier that they've done away with fixed route and gone to demand response. I can see people leaning more on Lyft, leaning a little bit more on Uber, leaning more on their taxi cab service to cover some of the services that aren't dense enough yet as we slowly trickle our way back into regular ridership. Maybe they're not, the, the services aren't dense enough to put a full bus on them, but they still want to provide service. Lauren, I see you wanted to say something. Well, I was just going to say, um, you know, I, I worked at the same agency Paul did, so I have a rail background. I think that heavy rail and rail properties are going to have a longer recovery than all bus and those that can implement some more um, swifter services. And I, and I think that, you know, it's never been cool to be the all bus agency or a small agency until now where you can make change very rapidly um, and you can think about something and put it on the road a lot quicker. Um, so like being the small system right now is like for once cool. Um, so, you know, we're, we had been planning on a ride share. We got a CMAC grant to pilot it. We've been testing it with the College of the Desert here, community college uh, in our area. And we are now going from pilot phase to just putting it out. So part of our refuel will be that we have nine areas already identified in our community that will be rideshare based. And um, fixed route will no longer even operate in those areas. These are unproductive areas for fixed route anyway. They're going to be even more unproductive in the world we live in today and in the future. And so when I talked earlier about taking time now to launch those visions, those things you thought about as an agency and knew you couldn't do either politically or the customer base or the community was going to be outraged by making any changes. And, and Paul, you know, in Baltimore, you couldn't change bus stop without there being huge impacts to the agency for trying to do so. Those are the kinds of entrepreneurial spirits we need to get moving 
and we need to start thinking outside the box. We regulate the taxis here. So Uber and Lyft will never be partners in the Coachella Valley. Um, and so we're taking taxi operators who no longer have trips and no longer have revenue and incomes. And those are our new rideshare operators. Uh, we're about to buy fuel cell vehicles for them to drive and lease those. The whole old taxi model that we used to do for paratransit can be new again. And it could be with Uber or Lyft. It can be with whoever you want it to be. But remember, we have a history in transit doing this before anybody did. Before Uber and Lyft, That's right. these right. types of services, for those of you that are young and new to this business, I'm old. I used to run Baltimore's taxi program, million rides a month on taxi. We've done this. We can do it with partners. We just have to get back to understanding what we want to do and who we're doing it for and implementing all those tools that we have in our community. And every town transit, you know, they say, if you've seen one transit agency, you've seen one transit agency. We'll all have to do it differently. But the old taxi voucher program, the old way that we used to handle service that we didn't necessarily want to do in-house because it was too expensive to do can be done in mass production now and can be done in a way that's quicker, faster, and gets our ridership back. Remember, all those fannies and seats count towards our ridership, no matter what the vehicle type is. Let's get back to understanding that and being about getting more riders on whatever vehicle type works best for those communities. Sorry to get on a soapbox. I real feel really passionate about this, as you can see. Um, but I just think that sometimes we talk ourselves out of knowing that we already know this model. We know the rideshare model, folks. We invented it in some ways. We actually capitalized on it 10 and 15 years ago. So let's not be afraid of it. Let's embrace it. Very good. I want to thank all that those was, who are- That was Sunday. That was some preaching. <laughs> Yeah, I want to thank all those who are who are uh, joining us um, today okay. on this webinar. Uh, we've got quite a few folks, uh, scores of people from around the country. I see some good friends, Chung Chung Tam uh, out of Chicago and Jerome Horn out of Indigo. Thank you for joining us today. Um, we, we now are going to be moving into answering some questions. Elliot, did you have anything you want to say before we get to the questions? Yeah, I, want, I wanted to throw in on that, um, on the commuting challenge, the commuter challenge, which I think I, I certainly don't have the industry answers to that at all. But from the marketing side, um, I would say the pro tip is like, don't lose your branding. You may, you may, your product could significantly change. Um, certainly, you know, going through just tremendous product and service changes, but hang on to your branding and don't let your branding use brain share. And I think also with, you know, we started the communications conversation today talking about trust, which definitely has to do with cleaning right away. <clears throat> but I think the next wave of messages is this great ironic torque, which is that transit is actually clean and cleaner and actually fights pandemic. And, and I think I have a feeling that choice riders and commuters are very engaged with that particular messaging. And we can apply that to a COVID situation to win back the trust and the use of choice riders and commuters. It'll take longer uh, because they don't have to do it, but I think that that's the right message for them. I agree. I think clean needs to be, uh, it has a double meaning, right? It's a double-edged sword, cleaning the environment and clean on the inside. And as we combine that messaging, it helps people feel safe. Um, so that's really good. We had a question for those on the line, a uh, question for all the transit leaders on the phone. What strategic and or operational changes do you anticipate making in the midterm the next six months to help with recovery? Anybody want to jump on that one? Peter, you got any thoughts, any changes you're going to make in the next six months? 
Well, I talked a minute ago about our, our vision for a community uh, dial-a-ride, and I like Lauren's idea, uh, sooner might be better. Um, so that's going to be high on the list. Um, we've got kind of a, a luxury here in terms of a rollout because we're a university town. The university won't be back till September. So that's really our framework for getting uh, the system stood back up. Very good. And um, thinking very much about what will that look like and, and if they're still treat, uh, teaching college online it's, in September, it's going to be a very different world in Whatcom County. So we're um, paying attention to, uh, to things like that, where things will be. And um, we're really using our data a lot about um, individual trips. How many people are on that trip? Do we need a trailer bus? Uh, where is that uh, changing day to day? And I imagine as we ramp back up that type of information uh, out of our ridership database that we can look at basically the next day is gonna be very important. Uh, also using our cameras a lot for that. We're not uh, into passenger counters on the bus, but we have those other two tools and we're gonna be using those to redesign how we ramp back up. That's good. I was going to make a suggestion. One of the things we're doing with running a Sunday service on an extended amount of time is we're really taking a look at our fleet. So it gives our maintenance opportunity an opportunity to really go through the fleet and look at what are campaigns that we need to start. What are what are areas where our fleet needs extra service that doesn't necessarily always have the time to do. And it gives those people an opportunity to do the things they wanted to do for a long time. And that can be recreated in other parts of your organization. But certainly if you're not running the same complement of service, um, look at the fleet, look at what kind of things you could be doing that you never had time to do before. And also in that group, we're really looking at training. Um, you know, we notoriously don't provide training to our bargaining units sometimes as much as we should. And I'm not speaking for every transit agency, I'll speak for my own that I've worked at. And so looking at the training that our technicians have, we don't call our uh, technicians mechanics. They are technology technicians at our organization because they run very complex um, systems to put that vehicle on the road. And all of you, whether you have BEBs or, or, or fuel cells or just CNG or just diesel, have a way more technical vehicle than you had 10 years ago, even five years ago. So looking at training right now and how you can maximize people's time and doing that training. Sam talked a lot about that with people sort of being repurposed in a way and reopened. Um, but there's a lot of training available virtually that your folks can be doing. Well, I wanna follow, follow up on that comment. Uh, I'm a reform maintenance director. And so that meant quite a bit to me. One thing we're looking at is extending the lives of our uh, diesel fleet to buy more time for elect the electric bus market to mature. And, and for the price to come down. I have a lot of buses that in an ideal world, I'd, I'd replace right now. And so my team is using this period to uh, rebuild, rebuild engines, for example, uh, to extend the life and get another couple of years so we'll be ready for the electrification. I was talking with um, Phil Washington last week, uh, the CEO of LA Metro. And by the way, he's our guest on the April 30th edition of Transit Unplugged, a full half hour with Phil. And I asked him which capital projects they're continuing to move forward with, you know, in this COVID crisis. And I've asked a number of other CEOs that, and some folks who were in the middle of doing a bus route reboot, like Sam's, you know, talked about they did there in, in, in Austin and Lawrence Dunn, and we did in Baltimore, started in Houston. A lot of them are pausing, and they're gonna wait and see what the new ridership trends look like. They're not just gonna go move forward with implementing a whole rerouting of their network when uh, 
the new ridership trends may be different when we get out of this. So that's one interesting tidbit of moving forward. Uh, Juan Girardi asks online, Girardi, uh, what could the what could be the wounds that would take longer to remedy, and that probably the public transport system should think about adapting already from now on? Any thoughts about that? The longer term wounds and and what we can do now to help adapt. Well, I would say certainly funding. We're all uh, many of us are are subsidy based on sales tax, and so even though we've been fortunate enough to receive this funding through the CARES Act who knows how long uh, funding cycles are going to be affected. I, I don't think, I, me personally, I don't project it to be a year. I project it to be longer than a year. And so there are going to be some wounds that we have to work through that are significant. And what do we look like as an agency? How do we employ people? Um, I think some of the things Sam talked about where people can do work from home at a reduced rate. They don't have as much overhead cost as an employee. So they have less overhead cost as for the employer. I think those are things we're going to have to get much more focused on, which we haven't always done as a business. You know, transit is a old school business in some ways and a technology company in another. So I think that there are going to be some wounds in our financial status and picture for a while that we're going to have to really pay significant attention to. Sam, talk to us about the, the financial impact of this on, on big agencies like your own. Um, those especially who are sales tax funded are seeing a bigger hit than others. I've asked, uh, last week I called six CEOs and asked them, how long will this money last you? And the, the, uh, the, the CARES Act funds. And those who were not based in sales tax, they thought the money would last them two years. Some of them, like Phil Washington, said, Paul, this is only going to last us through October. Which, uh, and so to, to, to make up their losses, what are your thoughts? I think that it's probably similar to, to, uh, to Mr. Washington's projection, at least for us, we're 78% uh, sales tax uh, funded with a penny for our entire service area. Um, I would expect at our current rate, uh, the needs that we have on the operation side, even trimming some of the fat, and obviously we've, we've done quite a bit of that for the FY21 budget, um, that it would probably be, it's, it's, it is a greatly appreciated pot of money. It would probably be December or January on our end. Um, we're fortunate that on top of the 17 months worth of ridership gains, we have also had an absurdly hot economy in Austin. And that, that is on the sales tax side, that's property tax, it's everything. So our reserves are probably more healthy than many. And that's because of the fiscal stewardship of our CEO and our CFO. Um, so we should be able to ride this out, but it will be a different world. I think the word used was wounds. There will be a lot of that. And I think one of the biggest ones, which we've already discussed a bit, is um, this is a trauma. It's a trauma for agencies. It's a trauma for every person experiencing it. And it's unique in that it's a trauma that we're all sharing. It's not like a hurricane, which is traumatic, but it, it affects that one area. But if you're in that one area, you know that over in California, it's still sunny and people are going about their day. This has affected everybody everywhere. Um, and that's going to take a while for people to get past, not just for transit, but for so many other things. So it's, it's so hard to predict how it's going to change us as people. Um, but it just behooves us to remember why it's important what we do and to collaborate and to get back out there and sell this fantastic product that we have. And I will just say very quickly, the Metro is in a somewhat unique situation because we've spent the past three years not only building our ridership, but preparing for a, uh, if you're just talking about the local share of this, not a 40% federal match, 
an over $5 billion um, tax rate election or bond for high capacity transit, LRT. And um, we have geared up the entire agency for that in November. We are still moving ahead with the planning efforts and the technical work. Uh, and we'll, in June, our policymakers will get together and make a decision there. Um, so there's a lot of, uh, there are a lot of things that need to, uh, to be worked out before that, but you know, we're, we're still out there selling transit and we're out there selling very big transit. Um, I'm sure there, there are other agencies out there doing massive capital projects that are already funded. Uh, I know Sound Transit, for instance, um, I had, had reached out to some of their folks and, uh, you know, this frees up a lot of time to do capital projects, but a lot of people be, do begin asking questions about what are the priorities of your agency moving forward. I want to uh, mention Jeff Barnett, who is uh, head of uh, transit in Charles County, Maryland, says we plan to repower a bunch of our older paratransit buses and took an opportunity to get them all done. We'll be ready when the ADA demand comes back. So along the lines of what some other folks have been saying is deferred maintenance or big projects so they can be ready. I do want to talk for a minute about funding. As I mentioned here in the U.S., uh, we were able to get $25 billion, um, and there is the chance of another stimulus type package that's being discussed in Washington, D.C. when it comes to infrastructure. And there could be another $100 billion or more headed toward transit. Not sure how soon that'll happen, but there is talk of that. Unfortunately, in Canada, uh, they're still, they still don't have a package. And just today, one of the larger transit systems in Canada announced, up near you, Pete, um, in Vancouver, announced some big layoffs. And so um, transit funding in most parts of North America has uh, traditionally been a responsibility of state and local governments and fare box revenue and advertising revenue. And the federal government, predominantly, especially over the last 10 years or so, has been there for capital dollars, for competitive grants, and for some baseline formula funding. Uh, this new funding that we got was represented 280% of the FY2020 allocation uh, across the country. So we already had 100% of FY2020, and we added 280% on top. It's the largest single uh, stimulus dollar amount passed out of Washington for transit in the history of the United States. I'm hoping that this is a kind of across the Rubicon moment for America and that the federal government realizes that they have an integral responsibility and that transit is not a nicety like airlines. It's not a nicety like a cruise ship. It's, it's a necessity. It is a public necessity for especially the urban areas of this country and even smaller cities and towns in order for us to function. We've all seen that, that the riders who are on our vehicles now are primarily those who have essential function jobs. And if we did not have mass transit in place for them, not only would the wheels in the bus not go round and round, but the wheels in our economy wouldn't go round and round. That transit is integral to the economy in the same way a school system is, in the same way a park is, maybe even more so than that in the same way that roads are. And so it is a responsibility, I believe, of the federal government to step up and fund beyond base levels in order for transit to begin to transition to whatever our new normal is. And I'm hoping that, you know, it was a bipartisan vote in the legislature and, and the Senate was unanimous and only one naysayer, I think, in the House. We're hoping that, uh, we wanna thank APTA for their role, the American Public Transit Association and the Community Transportation Association of America for their role in helping to make the case for transit to be included. The ridership declines in US transit systems was, was not our fault. It was a result of government actions which forced people to stay home and not work. And so we should not be, you know, take it all on the chin, just like uh, you know, other folks have said, if it's not your fault, those who created this crisis should help fund it. And that's what's happened so far. But like several of you have said, if ridership doesn't come back, 
and we still are in six months or nine months in a trauma situation where the wound hasn't healed, to use Juan's word. What is the role going to be of government and the federal government in particular to step up and can take on a continuing responsibility to maintain transit, not just as a local responsibility, but as a national trust, a national priority? Any thoughts on that, Elia? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, I, I, my heart rate goes up hearing you talk about that because that's really core to my, my ongoing messaging argument right now is that there, there's ridership and there's, you know, there are riders and there are choice riders and then there's everybody else. And the everybody else is represented in the 25 billion, right? That's the concrete rep. That's like a, it's like a wedding ring, right? It's the, it's the outside sign of an ins, of a of an established relationship. Um, so, I, I would entertain endless conversations with um, transit leaders about what what do we do to hold on to that public sentiment and remind everybody that. You know, so, so people just don't forget how important this is. Very good. We got a question, and it's it's a perfect in the last seven or eight minutes here. Many agencies stopped accepting cash fares to increase public safety. What does this mean going forward for contactless fares, mobile or smart cards, et cetera? I've got my own opinion. Anyone want to talk to that? I'll jump in on that first. Uh, we've gone to both a, a mobile fare system and smart card, and as uh, if we're going to stay on rear door boarding, we move the readers to the back of the bus. Uh, the, the entire system is renewable online. Um, somebody doesn't need to see a CSR. So I think there's tremendous potential here. This is 15% uh, of our revenue, the 15% that isn't sales tax. So we need to get this back too. Yes. I think that uh, a lot of transit agencies have, are going to move forward quickly to put in the uh, plexiglass barrier, and uh, they're going to realize that, hey, we can do all door boarding now as a result of that, and we can have validators at the front and back of the bus, just like on you know other systems, or even do off-board payment like we do on BRT or light rail or subway sometimes, and figure out a way to speed up the boarding process. I know that in Baltimore, where Lauren and I worked uh, at different times, but the... Uh, we figured out, John Duncan, my CEO, figured out that by allowing people to purchase day passes at the fare box, it was using 56,000 wasted hours of productivity because it took 30 seconds every time somebody bought a day pass at the fare box. If you had three people lined up to do that, that's a minute and a half, plus other people, it could take three minutes to board the bus. No wonder the buses, the average miles per hour were so slow. And no wonder nobody is super interested in riding it when it when you can walk faster than you can ride the bus in the central business district of a major city um, during rush hour. So we've got to figure out, we've got to use this opportunity, I think, to figure out how to speed up the bus, make it more efficient, um, and you know, do what, what was in this book, The Future of Public Transportation, that some of you here helped contribute to, which is um, uh, reboot the bus network, take them where they want to go today, um, add, reduce the friction that slows down the buses and increase the frequency of the heaviest use routes. Those trends are still true, I think, going forward. Do you think so, Lauren? I do. Um, I wanted to just share, I don't know if any of you have been paying attention to California, but there's been a lot of call for free transit for the state. And our board actually asked us to look into that. And I know it's fraught with all kinds of issues. Um, we always hear about the homeless will just ride, the, you know, we won't be a valued service. You have to market your service for a value and paying a fare creates that. I think our agency uh, is, is, is open to what our board and our community want from us in the future. 
Um, Paul, I share your idea um, about, you know, if we're going to be a 16 critical, one of the 16 critical infrastructures, that means we have to be prioritized in the way we're funded. Just like if a grocery store from now on is part of that essential service, then the way we fund and create jobs for those grocery store workers has to change. We can't continue the system of the lower level people, our bus drivers and grocery store workers, and they have to work, yet we're going to treat them as jobs, as the lowest class on the class of our job market in the country. And I, I feel really passionate about that. I'm sorry, Ali, I'll probably get it on the pulpit again. I get passionate about things, but it's, it's really something that I hope changes that the way this country views who keeps mobility in their city and in their community, who stocks their grocery store, who cleans the hospital, who does this type of work, becomes more effective in our government and that we treat that differently. I feel like we're a critical infrastructure. We have to operate, but sometimes we're seen as, you know, as some social service that doesn't have value to the community. You don't pay to go in your library. You don't pay to use some of the things that are a part of the utility of your community. I don't necessarily know you should pay for transit. I understand there's issues with that. But I also say they, there's a lot of excuses within that as well. And we have to really take a more educated look at what we do and why we do it and make some decisions that are good for our community and one size won't fit all. Very good. We're going to do a lightning round and ask each of you to give us a one minute wrap up. Uh, and uh, I want to encourage those who are, are with us today on this podcast. Thank you for joining us. Be sure to tune into our Transit Unplugged podcast. I also am on LinkedIn, as are most of the people on this call. Uh, I think all four of us are, and I'm sure that we'd love to hear from you. Follow us on LinkedIn. All of these are transit innovators and leaders, and they've got great ideas that you can glean from. Peter, let's go right down the line. Peter, then Ellie, and then Sam, you'll be the big wrap-up hitter. Hit a home run for us. Okay, well, thank you, Paul. Um, Right before this all hit, we had awarded a contract for a long range transit plan for the WTA. And uh, when we had our kickoff meeting about a month after the epidemic broke, I started, I told the consultant, well, our launching point is considerably different than we thought it was, wasn't it? But I think what I've heard today is a tremendously inspiring message I can take to my planning team and my consultant. Um, I no longer want to go back to normal. I'm ready for something new, and I think my agency and community is. So thank you, everybody. Thank you for your talk. Wow. Very that is a, that's a great quote, man. I'm going to use that. I no longer want to go back. I'm going to go back and get that. That's really good, Pete. All right, Elia? Uh, Pete said it, and Lauren said it, right? I no longer want to go back to normal. I'm excited about an opportunity to... Um, to really elevate the people who do the work that keep things going. Like what, what can we, what can we do to support those people and what does transit do to support those people? And um, to just never let uh, decision makers and voters and funders forget that we, um, that this is essential and it's necessary and it, it is a life or death issue for everyone, for everyone. Yeah. Sam. Grand Slam Sam. <laughs> um, yeah, I just, I would say that we're essential to our communities today and we'll be essential to the communities tomorrow. And I think at the, at the end of the day, whatever comes of this, and there's going to be a lot of opportunities, it really, it can have a steel wheel, it can have a rubber tire, it can have hydrogen, it can have diesel. Um, but at the end of the day, there is still a question of simple geometry that has always been the biggest benefit of transit. 
And then there's the fact that people have to move. We move people. However we find ways to do that, that's what we do. And it's something we should all be proud of. I know I am. Good. Lauren, actually, I'll give you the closing word. Sorry about that. Lauren was our keynote speaker and uh, at our conference, and so she gets to have the keynote close. I just want to thank all, all the folks that signed in, the, all the folks, my colleagues on this panel. I think that positivity is what we need to keep inspiring our employees and our communities on, and I hear it all over. Those that aren't, you need to help be more positive. The world needs it right now, and our country needs it. We are solvers of problems. We always have been. Transit has always had to reinvent itself. Sometimes we forget and sometimes it's too slow, but we have always been the ones to rise to the challenge and to meet those challenges. And I just think that we're more positioned to do it than ever. We have both old school folks like myself, Pete, Peter, I'll put you in an old school only because of our age, Paul. We've got new school thoughts like Sam and Randy's and other CEOs and other C-suite executives. And we're actually working together in a way that we never did before. We used to always say it had to be time and grade for you to be the person that spoke at the conference table. We are no longer that type of organization and it's really refreshing what we've become. So we just gotta ride that, you know, and keep it going. And I think we're gonna be okay. Thank you. Wow, what a great, you're always inspiring, Lauren, and all of you, Sam, Elliot, Peter, and Lauren, thank you so much for being our guest today. Uh, those of you online, make sure you tune in next Tuesday. We'll have our final of this series where we talk about technology and how to, how to use the technology you already have or what new technology may be interesting for you to help solve today and tomorrow's issues and make transit relevant, not back to the same old transit. Thank you again for being with us and stay safe out there.